You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 25th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today... All of the macroeconomic statistics in Argentina are very bad indeed, and that is hitting the pockets and the livelihoods of ordinary Argentinians. Argentina prepares to decide whether or not to re-elect a president whose pitch is basically it could just about be worse. Also ahead... It's just a pity that our chief executive saw these alarm signals, the red light, and did not make a U-turn and let the situation arrive where it is today. As Hong Kong prepares for another weekend of protests, a reflection on the weirdest incident of last weekend's. Plus, we'll look at one Swiss city's attempt to stave off the world's fast food chains and conduct what is sure to be a heated, though hopefully not actually violent, debate about the desirability of small talk during a haircut. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to today's edition of Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. Voters in Argentina go to the polls on Sunday, unbuoyed by little in the way of either hope or expectation. In the presidential portion of the elections, polls have had incumbent Maurizio Macri campaigning from the brace position for some time now. His numbers may hold up sufficiently to get him to a runoff next month, but even so, he looks likely to lose to Alberto Fernandez, and not insignificantly to Fernandez's vice presidential running mate and former president and former first lady, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. Declan McGarvey in Buenos Aires has this report. Argentina is in full-blown economic crisis at the moment. There has been a recession for three out of the last four years of the Macri government. Inflation in Argentina has reached almost 60% per year. Interest rates in an attempt to control that inflation rate have gone up to almost 80%. Unemployment is above 10%. All of the macroeconomic statistics in Argentina are very bad indeed, and that is hitting the pockets and the livelihoods of ordinary Argentinians. There is a crisis at the moment of poverty. Poverty rates are expected to hit 40% by the end of this year. There are crises of homelessness and hunger. It's increasingly a common sight to see entire families snuggle beneath sleeping bags in the centre of Buenos Aires. So Argentina, at the moment, as it goes to the polls, is in a full-blown economic crisis. Mauricio Macri, when he took power in 2015, said, first of all, that the inflation rate, which was then running at 25%, per year would be one of the easiest problems that he would solve under his government. He also said that he should be judged in four years' time, now in 2019, on his actions on poverty, that his government would aim for zero poverty. That poverty rate is now 35% and expected to reach 40% by the end of this year. Mauricio Macri promised to reopen Argentina's economy to the global economy, to liberalise Argentina's economy along free market lines and to bring sustained prosperity and growth back to Argentina, which has had a stagnant and poor growth economy for the last decade or so. But the consensus on his pro-business, pro-market reforms so far is that they have failed. Declan Mugavi in Buenos Aires there. Argentina is, of course, far from alone in Latin America right now in being roiled by the discontent of its people. Well, joining me to discuss this further is Monocle 24's resident, seething, furious South American, uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Um, Fernando, all jokes aside, it's 
It is a thing, isn't it? As you look across Latin America now, huge, indeed deadly protests in Chile sparked initially by a, a rise in metro fares. Um, protests over the elections in Bolivia, which uh, Evo Morales now appears to have won. But obviously Latin America is a big place and obviously all the different aspects of areas of Latin America have different problems and different issues. But is it a stretch to link these things together? Do you think it is a, a regional phenomenon? Well, it is clearly there's something happening because, there, are, as you say, there are protests uh, in Chile, deadly ones. I mean, 18 people died. There's been protests in Ecuador because the government tried to cancel the few subsidies. There's protests in Bolivia. Uh, you know, every single country, something's happening. Uh, in Brazil, and, of course. And Venezuela, of course. Has, oh, yeah. This has been going on for some years now. But, but the only thing that I'm finding very hard to link, in the past we used to call the pink tide, where there are a lot of leftist governments, and then there was kind of a wave against those mm. uh, populist leftist governments uh, as well. But now it's very hard. We can't say that, because at the moment, actually, uh, the political sphere in Latin America is quite diverse. More than in Europe, for example, we have you know far-left countries, for example, like Bolivia, well, even Venezuela, but that's a case apart. I think Venezuela is a, a special exactly, case. Exactly, exactly. We'll put it that way. But then you have... Uh, so-called uh, center-right moderates like Macri have far-right uh, with Bolsonaro in Brazil. So it's quite complicated, actually. Uh, but perhaps I'm just guessing here. I think a lot of people are tired of inequality. Uh, I think that's the main story here. I mean, if you look at Chile, which is supposedly to be the, you know, the, the economic success story of Latin America, yes, but then if you look at the statistics, uh, I think it's just behind Mexico as the most unequal country uh, you know, uh, in, in, in South America, actually. So, uh, so there's been kind of discontent in that form. So yes, for a lot of people, uh, when the Chilean economy was growing was excellent, but I think there was a part of society that, that felt left out, including this new middle class, you know, that actually did well in South America in recent years. Is it is it perhaps not so much inequality as such, though? Because there's always been rich people and poor people in South America, as there always has been, as, as more a sense of general stagnation. We've been talking about this a lot uh, on Monocle 24 this week, of course. And one thing that really brought me up short, because I genuinely didn't know this at the start of this week, is that as a region, South America is the worst economically performing region in the world. And that has been the case for some time when, and you will know this better than I do, when you look at the assets that South America has in terms of its natural and human resources, uh, the fact that it has moved on now for some years uh, past the period of repressive, corrupt, authoritarian military governments, it seems extraordinary that South America can't be made to work. I mean, it seems beyond extraordinary and actually inexplicable. Well, some people say that some countries, especially Brazil and Argentina, they have protectionist uh, policies that mm. affect the economy. But then if you look at a country like Chile, they're actually not protectionist at all. They are very kind of open. Uh, some people also called, uh, you know, there was a period in the noughties that South America was doing very well. The economies were growing. You know, it was the boom of commodities. You know, China was buying quite a lot of those products from South America. Some people say that this era is over and the countries, they didn't manage to kind of readapt to, 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 the, to, to, to what's happening now. I mean, because China is definitely buying a little bit less than they used to. Uh, so, yeah, there, there is a little bit, a bit of a crisis there. And you're very right. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at countries, Argentina, completely de destruction of, of their economy. I mean, as Declan said, there's people now with hunger. There's been one of the worst economic crises since 2001. So it is a very difficult situation. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you for the moment. We will have more from you later in the show. 
You are listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Mullet. Time now for What We Learned, Monocle 24's new weekly digest of what we know now that we didn't, or perhaps wished we didn't, seven days ago. We learned this week that, barring some bizarre aberration, never to be entirely ruled out where Brexit is concerned, the United Kingdom will still be a member of a bemused European Union, the other side of Halloween. October 31st had been declared a while back by British Prime Minister Boris Johnson as literally, well, technically metaphorically, but he literally used the metaphor, the ditch he was willing to die in where a Brexit departure date was concerned. On Tuesday evening, the UK's Parliament sort of voted for Johnson's withdrawal agreement and then voted against his hasty timetable for implementing it. Johnson had already brought some of his experience as a journalist to bear upon his withdrawal bill in that it was a massively oversold tweak of something scornfully rejected several times previously. We all know the feeling. The act of frantically finessing an impossible deadline will seem similarly familiar. The way to get this done, the way to get Brexit done, is, I think, to be reasonable with Parliament and say, if they genuinely want more time to study this excellent deal. They can have it, but they have to agree to a general election on December the 12th. An election at Christmas in newspaper offices all over London. Sighing sketchwriters are toiling at laboured gags comparing Boris Johnson to Santa Claus. One being a roly-poly blonde with a history of leaving other people's houses via the chimney in the middle of the night, while the other drives a sleigh, etc, etc, invoice attached. We learned, though the we in this instance very much does not include US President Donald Trump, that American disengagement from the Middle East is at least as hazardous as American engagement with the Middle East. The Kurds of northern Syria, who until very recently supposed themselves allies of the United States, found their territory being patrolled by Russian and Turkish troops, who, it is promised and or menaced, are there to, quote, facilitate the removal, unquote, of the Kurdish fighters who had been fighting alongside America. It can only be hoped that facilitate the removal is not about to enter the lexicon of sinister euphemisms. Trump was, however, roundly congratulated on this strategic masterstroke by at least one world leader. People are saying, wow, what a great outcome. Congratulations. It's too early to me to be congratulated. But we've done a good job. We've saved a lot of lives. We learned that Justin Trudeau will continue as Canada's prime minister and that Benjamin Netanyahu will not continue as Israel's. We learned that India and Pakistan, despite persistent appearances to the contrary, can get together on something, specifically a corridor which will allow Sikhs in India to visit a shrine just the other side of the border. Samira Shackle spoke to us on the briefing on Thursday. 
It's hugely significant. It's the second most holy site in Sikhism. The first most holy site is also in uh, in Pakistan. This site is the place, the one in question is the place where Guru Nanak, the founder of the Sikh religion, died in the 16th century. So it's a hugely holy site to the extent that many of the Indian uh, Sikh pilgrims who've been wanting to visit for years and have been stymied by visa requirements sometimes um, look at it via binoculars from across the border. We learned that even amid a news landscape not presently parched by a shortage of popular tumult, the raucous demonstrations locking down Lebanon look significant. A hefty proportion of the country's population are still on the streets after protests against a proposed tax on internet-borne phone calls escalated swiftly into protests against almost everything wrong with Lebanon, which, after decades of corrupt and sectarian post-Civil War misrule, is almost everything. We learned, though it wasn't much of a surprise, that there really is no limit to the ophery of some people. The climbing of Uluru, the scarlet sandstone monolith at the heart of Australia, was finally banned this week, after years of being merely politely discouraged. Ill-mannered hordes of galumphing yahoos seized this last chance to trample upon ground sacred to the local Anangu people. Reports of ankles being sprained during the hazardous ascent have been depressingly few. And we learned that the Finns, a proverbially stoic and stolid people no more given to displays of overt emotion than any given outcrop of granite, will admit to harbouring one irrational, sentimental affection. For buckets. As was explained by Monocle's resident Finland explainer, Marcus Hippie. I actually have to admit that if someone offered me a free bucket, I would take it. I, I would maybe queue for five minutes for a free bucket, but I do realise that I do have this thing that so many Finnish people have. I find it very hard to throw things away. I'm a hoarder. I like having things. And with that final holding of the bucket that is this weekly audio digest beneath the raging torrent of another seven days' worth of news, for Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Demonstrations look set to continue in Hong Kong this weekend as what started out as objections to a new extradition law proceed into a fifth month of large-scale and occasionally violent displays of more generalised dissent. Last weekend saw a curious escalation in which Hong Kong police doused the city's biggest mosque with the blue dye in which they have been deluging protesters. Karina Choi from Monocle 24's Hong Kong Bureau spoke spoke to a witness to the incident, Mohan Chugani, former chairman of Hong Kong's India Association. We all saw two police vehicles approaching. Mm -hmm. I thought nothing of it because it's been going on for four months. I live in Austin Road, very near the police station, so I smell tear gas at my house as well. So it's it's nothing new. Mm -hmm. I never dreamt that I would be targeted or shot at. But there was a lot of rubbish there as they put, as they put uh, rubbish cans and 
many objects there so that the vehicles can't cross. But this heavy police vehicle crossed over them. There were no policemen on foot. I did not see any policemen first. It crushed over them, made a loud bang, and then it crossed over. Still, I thought nothing of it. I thought they were just going along Nathan Road. But the water cannon vehicle stopped, aimed. At first, I thought they were just taking a photo of who's outside for surveillance. I never dreamt that they were actually going to shoot. So the first blast was not so intense, but it really scared me. Then I suddenly remembered from the introduction of these vehicles that it can blow something 300 pounds away. So that struck in my mind, so I merely turned around and held onto the bars over there to, to feel safer. And the second blast came much more intense. So if I did not hold on, I would have been blown away. Right. After that, lasted, I don't know how long it lasted, maybe 30 seconds and so on, and that my whole body seemed to be on fire, totally on fire. I tried to open my eyes to see what's happening, but I could not open my eyes at all. I was blinded for at least 25 minutes. It was paining like anything. And I don't even know who came to my aid. All I could hear is that people said, Mohan, are you okay? Are you okay? Uh, we, we need to drench you with water. Uh, open your eyes. But I simply could not open my eyes. Naturally, they were sprayed too. But there was a bus stop right outside the mosque and there was some kind of billboard over there and I'm 73 years old I couldn't think fast enough or move fast enough but the other people who were next to me the several I think they were to take refuge behind so they did not take the full blast of the water cannon which I did because I was holding on the bar so but I did notice one thing that when the vehicle stopped it took aim as I said, I thought they were taking my photograph. They took aim and blasted, and I did not dream that they would actually shoot at me. Mm -hmm. I just want to take this back to the wider context. Kowloon, yes. especially this area, seems actually a lot has been happening here in terms of protests yes. and yes. police violence and protest violence. Yes. And obviously, a lot of the people we see on the news are young Chinese people yes. on the front lines. How has your direct community been affected by this, and how have they responded? Most of, uh, shall I say, uh, the Indians in Hong Kong tend to stay at home. They don't quite understand this whole situation as to why it is happening, and they're just waiting for it to be over. But mm -hmm. it's not yet over. At least I know many of my friends uh, have uh, sent part of their money or, or the cash to overseas banks and not, not leaving it in Hong Kong. At least some of them have. Now, as far as uh, moving away, I think there's a watch-and-see situation. But some of them have uh, decided to send the children, at least to overseas, to study. Do you think that there is a silent majority who don't necessarily align with the protesters' point of view, but also disagree with how the police have been handling the situation? Now, if the protesters behaved properly, I'm quite confident that Hong Kong's general public will be on their side. But once you have a few dirty rotten apples who behave the others, who, who are not the mainstream, 
right? There are so many rumors that they are paid to do it and so on. And I saw it myself, which I've never seen in Hong Kong, born and raised here. I'm 73 years old. They're actually throwing bottles of cocktails outside the police station. It's, it's something that in my wildest dream, I cannot imagine what happened in Hong Kong. Who are these people? Why are they doing it? Because I think the power comes from two million walking out peacefully. The message is loud enough because police cannot control a crowd that even of a million people if they do it peacefully. The message will get through and is the best message in my opinion. Nonviolence, silently walking, a million, two million is enough. It's just a pity that our chief executive saw these alarm signals, the red light, and did not make a U-turn and let the situation arrive where it is today. If she had a consultant or whoever at her side would have advised her, I think we made a wrong decision. What you see today won't be happening. And I have told Mrs. Lam this also. Mm -hmm. I said, you need to change your cabinet. There are a few people that need to go. I didn't mention any names. I think whole of Hong Kong knows who they are. That was Karina Choi in our Hong Kong Bureau speaking to Mohan Shigani, former chairman of Hong Kong's India Association. In a moment, one Swiss city stand against marauding fast food chains and the quest for a silent haircut. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Now, anybody who has visited Switzerland, and especially anybody who has nervously submitted an expenses claim after visiting Switzerland, knows that bargain dining options are thin on the ground. 20 quid for a bagel and coffee, I ask you. But I had receipts. Nevertheless, thousands of citizens of Lausanne have signed a petition got up by the scarlet standard swishing pinkos of the Workers' Party. This aims to limit the number of fast food chains operating in the city following recent openings of Kentucky Fried Chicken and Five Guys outlets. Uh, still with me is Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and I'm also joined by Monocle's Paige Reynolds and Chris Chermack. Um, this comes up fairly frequently, uh, well, actually reasonably often, the denizens of some or other, usually European city, deciding they don't want any of these usually American fast food chains bespoiling their high street. Um, does anybody here at this table have any sympathy? For McDonald's. <laughs> Paige <laughs> who is going to be the first to, to speak up for McDonald's. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure I can talk about the, the particularities of Lausanne. I've never been there. I'm not, I'm not entirely nice. sure of the demographic. It's a very pretty um, town. You know, I think, of course, there's a lot of sense to this. Uh, the food offerings are unhealthy. We all know that. It's a drag on, on public health services when people continuously eat fast food. Um but in, in defence... Is it not a drag on public health services when people have heart failure on being charged 20 quid for a bagel and coffee? That's true. I, you know, Andrew, I hadn't thought of that, but I'm glad <laughs> you're here to set me straight. But what I would say is I think this is not only uh, coming from the side of, of the government and the people, it's also coming from just a changing consumer mindset generally. I think people are a lot more health conscious. We're a kind of generation of sort of health obsessed people. People are drinking less, smoking less. People are, are, are taking their health into account. So I think there's actually just less market for, for these kind of uh, institutions. But in defence of Kentucky Fried Chicken and perhaps more McDonald's, um, 
what I think is is sort of so uh, wondrous about McDonald's, if I may, is just is their sort of <laughs> ubiquity. It, this, is, this is taking Monocle no, twenty four into a bold new realm. They're, they're kind of like international ubiquity, and like wherever you go on holiday and whenever you go travelling. You, you'll find a McDonald's and, and it does kind of feel like home. And I sort of hate to say that because I really, I like to be sort of say that I'm quite a worldly person. But in my travels, um, I, I definitely have had some moments where I've just really needed to be somewhere familiar and somewhere where I know what I'm getting. Um, and I think McDonald's kind of offers that. One particular place, I, I had McDonald's in um, in Sandakan in Malaysian Borneo, and I, and I really needed it. I, so... I, I, I will concede myself that circa 1996, after a quite long cold stretch in Moscow, I went to the recently opened McDonald's basically on the grounds that I thought somebody might actually smile at me. Um, only because they were being paid to and told to, of course. But nonetheless, at that point, I was willing to take it. Um, Chris, how do you, how do you feel about this? So if nobody else is going to stand up for KFC, then I guess I'm going to be the one to take a stab at that. Uh, on a serious personal note, I do have a, a boyish fascination with both KFC and uh, Dunkin' Donuts uh, that I can throw into this conversation. Because as an American who grew up, or a part American who grew up in Europe, there was always a fascination for me with the fast food coming from the U.S. and something that I would always have and love to have when I went back to the United States. And so there is this sort of what struck me about this story was also, you know, the need that we have to say this wasn't a push against uh, Americans. I think the quote was like, we're not anti-American. We just don't like the health impacts of fast food. And well, fast food is a very on, really. American thing, yep. obviously, these days. But it's also, as you talk about, it's spread there where it's it does, there is this this love that people have in all kinds of countries for fast food and I think I guess the important thing is like anything it's about moderation isn't it it's not just it's not that you can never have fast food uh, uh, ever and, and if I may moderation. if I may continue to defend McDonald's you might have to extend Please. the program um <laughs> I, talking about this or doing a little bit of research on this reminded me of a fantastic story I saw earlier this year and that is that McDonald's in Austria Chris um, have actually come to an agreement with the US Embassy there. I remember this. And the Embassy says that any American in distress or whose passport has been lost or stolen can get assistance from one of Austria's 194 McDonald's joints. So it's not just fast food. It's, it's, that's, that's, basically the, yeah. that's basically the 21st century American equivalent of that rule by which any citizen of ancient Rome anywhere in the world could declare themselves, I am a Roman citizen, and expect the might of the empire <laughs> to hasten to their protection. I think people in Luzanne, they should chill out. And, 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 and you know what? And you know what? And I'll tell you, living in London, we ha I have a different problem. In the neighborhood surrounding us, there's too many poke restaurants. Uh, you know, the, the Hawaiian poke... I find them a bit annoying. There's too many what restaurants? You know, poke. Poke bowl. Is, yeah. it, is it poke? Yeah, yeah, it's poke. Say. It's sort of like uh, um, it's this marinated salmon within, with a rice this, bowl. The, the, it's the, Hawaiian. This has not yet reached Leytonstone. No, but listen, very healthy, very healthy. But on my walk to home, I saw like 10, 10 pokes. I don't want pokes on my streets anymore as well then. If we're going to do a, a, a little okay. It is amazing how obsessions go, right? Where it's not just fast food, but anything that takes over. In the yeah. US, there was also, you know, there was a cupcake fascination for a while where all of a sudden every single... I, I remember the cupcake wars, cupcakes. yes. Yeah. Um, well, well I, I think we have gleaned around this table that there is limited sympathy uh, for the, the, citizen, <laughs> the citizens of Lausanne. So apologies to our listeners uh, in Lausanne. Uh, but finally today, uh, and inconclusive proof that my input into the story list of this 
this show is severely circumscribed. It says here that an East London hairdressery, amusingly, by which I mean amusingly in inverted commas, called Not Another Salon, is offering the option of a silent haircut for those who would rather not talk to the stylist about whatever the hell people talk about when they're getting their haircut. Um, Fernando, I understand from having diligently researched this fascinating item earlier that you have some extremely fixed opinions on this. Well... Because I completely disagree. I mean, I love my hairdresser, Josh. I mean, I know about his life. He just had a baby. Uh, Congratulations, so, Josh. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would be quite sad if, if I have to write down, oh, please, don't talk to me. And apparently, it's not only with hairdressers. Apparently, it's a new trend. Apparently, Ubers as well. You can choose the option. Don't talk to me. I, I don't like that. I mean, mind you, I do like to be in silence sometimes when I'm in cabs, but... I prefer this to be kind of a more of a natural experience instead of me taking a box. The, 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 the talking cab driver is a an extremely mixed proposition. You can be very, very fortunate. And all jokes aside, I, I have learned a great deal from yeah. minicab and Uber drivers in London. About, Same here. Very often about the country from which they came over the years. Um I've also been bored to the verge of tears by um, when, when you get unlucky with the taxi driver. And weirdly, the only actual proper old school head banging, send them all back pro Brexit, I voted leave cab driver I have encountered was driving an Uber in Adelaide. Figure that one out. You fly all the way there and get yelled at about Brexit for half an hour before you get dropped off at your aunt's place. Um, this does seem a bit weird, doesn't it, Paige? Chris, the idea that you could go into this, this shop and say to them up front, I don't wish to exchange any conversational pleasantries with the person cutting my hair? Yes. I mean, I, I'm sort of a, in, in phase school of thinking. I, I have a hairdresser that I've been to for years, and me and my mum actually have the same hairdresser, and I think she sort of acts as this kind of dual mother-daughter counsellor, which is sort of uh, was useful in the teenage years. Um, moving on from this, my problem isn't really uh, the fact that they have this sort of like silent time. You know, okay, fine, some people are antisocial, some people want that. My problem is that it's sort of being marketed as this sort of mindfulness benefit. And I think oh we're seeing God, it's this... Oh, it's not, is it? No. Yeah, it is. And we're seeing this increasingly <laughs> so, is that uh, a lot of companies, particularly that are in that kind of like self-care world, are kind of using mindfulness as a marketing ploy. And mindfulness in and of itself is obviously about being present and it's it's not something you can sort of box up, but here we have it sort of made into a, a, a sort of a commodity, something else that we that we need to buy into, something else that we're missing out on if we don't have. And I just think I, I don't exactly know what I'm trying to articulate, but I feel a bit complex. I think I about companies, yeah, trying to sell back my own free time to me. Final, very quick thought thought on this, Chris. Where are you on this? Are you the kind of person that goes into such an establishment and says up front, "I do not wish to be addressed. I don't want anyone to make eye contact," <laughs> or I. I think I agree with Fernando that it happens quite naturally. There are times where you're in the mood to talk and there are times where you aren't. So I don't need, know if I need to really tick a box. And to your point about taxi drivers, I've had some fascinating conversations with taxi drivers. It's the best way to learn, and the same with hairdressers, about the culture, not only of where they came from, but even where they are. I've had great living in Berlin the last five years before coming here. I've, had, I've learned all my history of the city and the Berlin Wall from taxi drivers. So sometimes you just you just want to have a chat. Well, I feel like, therefore, it would solve something, though I'm not sure what, if not another salon went and opened a boutique in Lausanne. Um, but that is all we have time for today. Uh, Chris Chermack, Fernando Augusto Bacheco and Paige Reynolds, thank you for joining us. The House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Coming up at 20.00, a brand new edition of The Menu with Marcus Hipp. 
Chippy. Monocle's House View returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Thank you.